Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So both our Old and New Testament lesson paint a picture of true repentance. What does true repentance, faithful repentance, look like? And in, in the book of Concord, we're given an explanation of repentance. It says, properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition, sorrow, or terror on the account of sin, and yet at the same time to believe the gospel and absolution, namely that sin has been forgiven and grace has been obtained through Christ. And this faith will comfort the heart and again set it at rest. An amendment of life and the forsaking of sin would then follow. For these must be the fruits of repentance, as John says, bear fruit that benefits repentance. And so, what that means is, for a person to repent, two things have to be present. First, you have to actually be sorry over your sin. And second, you have to have faith that Jesus forgives sins for the sake of his cross. And so, in our lessons this morning, we, we have the account of Cain and Abel, and we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and both of these stories give us both positive examples of repentance and faith and negative examples of repentance and faith. So we're going to start with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were the first children to be born in the creation. The sons of Adam and Eve were born after their parents fell into sin. And that means they were born under the curse of sin. And their, their falling condition made them just like us. And that means that they would have been called to suffer the effect of sin in their life. They would have daily fallen to temptation. They would have exhibited human weakness. They would have to struggle to know and do the right things. But they would also have known of God's promise to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. Their parents would have repeated God's curse upon the serpent to them, which was a blessing to Adam and Eve, as God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there would be one born of Adam and Eve, or the children of Adam and Eve, that would crush the serpent's head, would undo the sin that had entered into creation. And they would also, Cain and Abel, have known the object lesson that God gave to Adam and Eve as he killed animals to provide skin to cover Adam and Eve's shame and nakedness, as those two animals had to die to cover Adam and Eve's shame. It would have been as if God were saying, your sin and your shame will be covered in the death of the promised seed who would be born of a woman. So these two realities would have guided how Cain and Abel lived and worshipped before God. They would go about their work, which was now toilsome and difficult because, once again, sin entered the creation. And they would have seen the effects of their sin. They would have felt the weight of it working the earth, fighting the weeds, fending the predators away from their flocks, and watching their livestock succumb to illness. They would have seen crops have difficulty in growing. They would have seen uh, newborn lambs fail to thrive. Yet their parents taught them to seek comfort in the worship of God. 
And so they brought the fruits of their labor to the Lord, and they offered them to God in sacrifice. And these sacrificial offerings were meant to be reminders of the sacrificial offering that God would offer to atone for their sins. It was all pointing to the coming of Jesus. Every thought, every bit of worship, every focus. God was going to send a Savior that was going to redeem this fallen and broken creation. But we can see how these things were offered and regarded by God, who had sorrow over his sin and who had faith in the promised Savior. Which of the two brothers was faithfully worshiping God in repentant faith? Abel offered the best of his flocks and the fat portions of his flocks, and Cain brought a portion of his harvest. And so we see in Abel, as he comes to the worship of God, his offering is offered in faith. It's in trust in the provision of God, it's in trust that God would be gracious to him, and it's also in understanding of the mercy of God. He brought the best offering because he knew that God was going to give a greater offering for him. We see this also, though, in Cain's offering. God accepted Abel's sacrifice not because it was better or worse than Cain's, but because it was given in faith that God was sending a Savior into the world. God did not regard Cain's offering. Cain simply walked up to the altar, tossed on a portion of his harvest. For him, giving the offering was not an act of faithful worship and expectation of a promised Savior from sin. It was simply an obligation. He grabbed some of his fruit. He tossed it on the altar. I'm covered. I've met it. When God had regard for Abel's sacrifice over Cain, anger and jealousy began to grow. Cain's anger is apparent. His face is downcast. He's angry with God. He's angry with his brother. And Cain begins to think, oh, God loves Abel more than me. I met the requirement. I brought my stuff before God. He should favor me. I'm not, am I not the oldest and better brother? Did my mom not say, hey, I've brought forth a man with the help of the Lord? That's not fair. When a person feels like they've been treated unfairly, they tend to lash out at the more fortunate person. And his anger begins to focus on Abel, and God in his mercy seeks to show Cain his error. He tells the real problem is not Abel, the real problem is him. It's his heart, his, his unrepentance, it's his lack of faith. And so the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. And in this statement, God is calling Cain to repentance. He's calling him to acknowledge his own sin and to trust in the promise of the coming Savior. It's like he's saying, hey, Cain, sin is bad for you. But I have the remedy. Do what is good for you and trust in my promise. Worship me and live before me according to my promise, according to the good things I've done for you. Now, we know Cain doesn't do that. His anger grows, grows, it festers, and finally he murders his brother. And as God confronts Cain, he says, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The blood of Abel is crying out as a testimony of vengeance against Cain. It's a testimony of his sin. And so it is with us. Our sin that leaves a mark. Our sins are evidence against us as we stand before God. The blood of our own victims cries out against us. And while I reckon that most of you haven't murdered your brother, like Cain, none of us stand before God guiltless. Our sins do us harm. Our sins do others harm. They have an effect that hurts us and our neighbors. There are no victimless crimes. There are no harmless sins. Sin destroys what is of God. Sin destroys what is good. And that is all it's capable of doing in the end. It takes good things and it breaks them. It takes life and it ends it. It takes trust, and it violates that trust. It scandalizes other people to fall more deeply into their sin. It disrupts and brings deceit into the heart. It disorders our affections. It drives us and others away from God. And that destruction that sin reaps stands as a witness against us in this life. And God does not neglect to do justice. The sins of this world must be punished. Our consciences bear witness to this reality. As the burden of guilt comes to us each and every day and afflicts us, as we remember that sin, or we come to realize a sin that we have committed, and it casts us into terror knowing that God will judge the unrighteous. Cain never really does show true repentance over his sin of killing his brother. He's exasperated over being found out. He pleads for mercy from God that he would not let Abel's death be avenged upon him as he lived in this world. And in that regard, God is merciful even to Cain. Cain being cursed, but he's not immediately smitten by God. He gives Cain time to live on the earth, to see his need, and to repent. So the question arises, what are we to do? How are we to face the reality of sin and evil that dwells in our own hearts? How do we reckon with our own blood-stained consciences? And this leads us to the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells us of two men who enter into the temple to pray. The first is the Pharisee. And everyone would have seen him go into the temple, and they would have said, That's a good and just man, that Pharisee. Everyone would have seen him go into the temple and say, God must truly be pleased with him. Because that's the guy who works hard. That's the guy who's devoted to the righteousness of God. Look how piously he carries himself. Look how devout he is. And surely the Pharisee thought that about himself. He listed all the good things he does. He gave tithes, he fasted, he obeyed the traditions of the elders and the code of the Pharisees. He rested on the Sabbath day, he washed to avoid impurity, he avoided unclean food, he avoided unclean people, and he taught the children of Israel to do the same. He would have believed that he had cracked the code, that he finally disciplined himself and his life to be truly good and righteous. And you can see this in how he prays to the Lord. 
As he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like those other men. I'm not like those extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. In other words, he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner at all. I'm better than all the terrible people. Look what I do for you. Look how devout I am. I'm righteous. You're welcome. You're welcome, Lord, at how good I am. You're welcome, Lord, with how well I serve you. Reward me. You see the problem here? He is more like Cain than he knows. Yes, he's not a murderer, but he has the same defect when it comes to the worship of God. Just as Cain saw his sacrifice as a, a mere religious obligation, the Pharisee saw his life of devotion the same way. He was focused on himself. They both looked inward for assurance. And when they looked at themselves, they saw their works and believed that God was obligated to reward them. Do you know what they did not see looking inward? Their own sin. The Pharisee did not look at himself and see a sinner in need of a merciful God. He looked and saw a perfect specimen of godliness. He looked at his own righteousness to find comfort. And to this Pharisee, God was simply an excuse to elevate himself above others. He did not need a merciful God who saved sinners. Functionally, he probably didn't need God at all. Because he was satisfied with himself and his own righteousness. And this happens so often in our own hearts. As we begin to look at ourselves, our works, and our, our attitudes... For assurance. We try to gather evidence within ourselves that, man, I'm, I'm really a good person. As we constantly compare ourselves to others, looking at other people's faults, other people's weaknesses, so that we can prove to ourselves that we're better than they are. We look at that bad person over there and say, well, I'm not as bad as they are. I must be doing pretty well. I mean, I'm not a Democrat. I must be doing pretty well. I'm not an extortioner. I'm doing pretty well. And so we find the new Christian who is still figuring things out and we say, <laughs> I've moved on from their lowly existence. Maybe one day that person will be as enlightened and disciplined and as good as I am. Maybe they'll have a faith as strong as mine. We compare ourselves to those outside of the church and we say, hell, look how awful they are. Isn't it great? I'm not like them. I'm doing better than most if most people think like this so patently dishonest because we like pharisees are failing to recognize what we truly are we're sinners and this is what the tax collector really had going for him he saw things rightly there was no question about what who he was and what he had done tax collectors were just about universally hated by everyone they represented the worst sort of person a traitor. And Dante's Inferno, the deepest level of hell, was reserved for people who betrayed their nation. And the tax collector, he was the prime example of that in the New Testament time period. The tax collector was living in service to those Romans. The Romans, those occupying, power-robbing people who were denying the Jews full possession of their promised land. Oh, this man was serving them by stripping Israel of her wealth. 
Tax collectors were notorious for fraud. There wasn't a tax code, per se, at the time of the Caesars in the early Roman Empire. Each tax collector had a quota that they had to gather for Caesar, and then they could collect whatever else they wanted for themselves. So they could take as much as they wanted, so long as Caesar got a cut. They made money. They were somehow obscenely wealthy compared to everyone else. And so here we have a man who was hated and despised for being a traitor. He was a known fraud. He was viewed by many as an irredeemable sinner. And you know what? He knew every bit of it. As he stood before God, he did not confess anything else. He simply looked to the ground. He beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He confessed his sins before the Lord. He acknowledged his fallen condition. He saw the blood that bore witness against him. Abel's blood that cried for vengeance and justice also cried out against this man. And he knew it. And what makes him different is that he appeals to a different blood to redeem him from himself. He says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The word that our Bibles usually translate as be merciful is actually another word in Greek. It's, it's halaskomai, which means mercy seat. He's saying, God, mercy seat me. The mercy seat was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was that ornate golden box that was placed in the most holy place of the temple, and inside of it were the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And the lid was meant to symbolize the throne of God in the temple of the Lord. And once a year, the high priest would enter that most holy place, stand before the Ark, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as a sign of the atonement of the sins of Israel. And so the Ten Commandments, the law that we violate, would be covered in blood and atoned for. And that blood was meant to be a foreshadowing of the blood of Jesus that would be shed to atone for the sins of the world. And so when this tax collector comes into the temple and prays, his prayer is more like this. Saying, God, atone for my sins with the blood of your son because I need it. I'm a sinner. That is true repentance. It is true sorrow over sin that is comforted by the fullness of the gospel. Just as Abel's blood of vengeance afflicts our consciences and demonstrates our guilt, Christ's blood is the righteousness that covers our sins as our atonement. The blood of Abel accuses us, and the blood of Christ forgives us. The Pharisees thought that he could appease the accusing blood of Abel by being better than everyone else. He thought that if he worked harder and he proved his devotion, that he could overcome his own sin. He believed that he had done it. Yet as Jesus says, this man does not go home justified. The justice of God was not satisfied by the hard work and the valiant efforts of the Pharisee. No matter what he did, he could not overcome his sin he could convince others he could fool himself but god would not be blind god is the judge and the blood of abel stands as a testament against him in another part of the gospels jesus points out how the sins of the pharisees hurt others he says but woe to you scribes and pharisees you hypocrites for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces 
For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go into it. Woe to you, scribes and heresies, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You see, the Pharisees came to the world with their gospel of self-righteousness, and in doing that, they insisted, everyone has to be at least as good as me. How harmful that was to those who wanted to enter the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not opened to anyone by self-righteous works. Rather, it's opened only by the mercy that God has for sinners. God calls us to deny all of our works as a means of salvation. St. Paul, after listing all of his worldly accomplishments, says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so we have two types of blood bearing witness concerning our righteousness and salvation. We have the blood of Abel, figuratively at least, accusing us of our sins, pointing them out, afflicting our consciences, making the case before God, look at the damage he's done. And we have the blood of Jesus, that is the atonement, that's the propitiation, that is the forgiveness of our sins, as he frees us. The blood of Jesus is shed for sinners. You must be a sinner to receive the blessings and benefits of the blood of Christ. You must recognize what sin is. You must also trust that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You must believe that his blood was shed on your account and for your good. Because it is the final atonement God gives for your sin. You must live by faith in Jesus that just as Christ has died for you, you know in certainty that your sins are forgiven. And now we're nothing other than sinners in the hands of a merciful and forgiving God, so that in the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our Lord will never run out. That is why we join the tax collector every Sunday as we sing just a few minutes ago, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. As we sing those wonderful words in the Kyrie, we are shown what sort of mercy Christ comes to bring. Because just as a tax collector returned to his home justified, we are filled with the righteousness of God through the forgiveness of sins. That's why we come to church. That's why we're here today. And this is why we come to church every Sunday. If we're able, we come to church to be Cain seeking... We don't come to church to be Cain seeking to fulfill a holy obligation. We don't come to church to be a Pharisee simply to do an outward work of righteousness to impress everyone else. We come to church with the faithfulness of Abel and the sincerity and conviction of the tax collector. We come to church every Sunday because we're sinners who believe that God forgives us for Jesus' sake. We come because this promise of forgiveness is declared to repentant sinners. That the assurance and comfort of God's mercy are provided to poor souls who desperately need the mercy of God in Christ. 
We come to church to have our consciences removed of burden and the weight of our sin lifted off our shoulders. We come to church to be encouraged and comforted by Jesus who says, I have taken away your sin. The fruits of the cross of Jesus are borne out as the children of God gather to worship him. As we gather as repentant sinners trusting in the gospel of forgiveness. Faithful worship of God is always the reception of God's forgiveness. Faithful worship of God is always growing in the mercy of Christ. It is to receive the good things of Jesus so that as Jesus dwells before us in his promises, we know we're forgiven. That's what we are called to today. That's what the Pharisee and the tax collector were called to. That's what Cain and Abel were called to. That's what you have been called to. To rest in the hands of a loving and merciful God who redeems sinners. Let us pray. Blessed Father in heaven, we pray that you would cause us to see our sins. And above all, we ask that you bless us with saving faith in our Savior. Help us to see and to believe that there is no righteousness in us other than Christ's righteousness. And help us to remain humble and to live lives that are fully given to this sincere and repentant faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith and to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.